Welcome back to America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipke here with Professor Akil Amar. Hi, Akil. Hey, Andy. So, um, you know, coming up to the end of the Supreme Court term here as we record this, and some of you may have been wondering uh, how come we haven't been talking about it. And uh, the reason is that we're kind of saving it up. Um, When the term is over, some of the people that uh, cover the court and are involved with cases at the court may find their schedules a little more free and a little more uh, available to appear on America's Constitution. And we've got some uh, primo guests lined up in that respect. And of course, uh, you know, Akil himself will be more ready to discuss the case. So uh, we'll have a, an episode or two uh, on the court. So yeah, in fact, today um, uh, we, we were watching some of our future guests actually on streaming video and uh, starting to think about uh, um, uh, what we're going to ask them when they come onto this podcast. Actually, this morning they, the court announced some cases and I had the, uh, the experience of learning how to be a court watcher. With, uh, with the king of the court watchers, Professor Marr. So uh, maybe we'll share some of those, uh, those inside tricks with you when the time comes. Um, but now we're back to our, our discussion of the Ivy League. Um, and, uh, you know, I was talking with my, uh, with my wife the other day about the, the podcast, and she said, uh, you know, you, there, are, there were schools other than the Ivy League schools uh, back at the time of the founding, you know, um, weren't they important? And I think uh, she's right that we, that we would be remiss if we didn't uh, address at least one of those important institutions. Well, let's talk about both of them. As uh, our audience will remember, uh, nine colleges uh, were in existence when the Constitution was adopted. The seven oldest Ivy League schools, current Ivy League schools, everyone except uh, Cornell. So that is in rough chronological order, Harvard. Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Penn, Brown, uh, and Dartmouth. Um, uh, But there were two others, and Columbia was called King's College back then. There was Queen's College, which today is called Rutgers uh, um, in New Jersey. Um, And there was William and Mary, which was actually the second oldest uh, school. Um, I don't have a lot to say about Columbia. Queens or Rutgers, but yes, we would be absolutely remiss in not talking about the importance of the College of William and Mary at the founding and throughout uh, constitutional history. Remember, we're we're getting into all of this because we are acknowledging that especially at the founding, um, people who were college educated, who were a teeny tiny proportion of the population, loomed disproportionately large in uh, America's constitutional uh, founding, uh, and even those who had some college training often didn't formally have degrees. Hamilton, for example, never completed his studies at Columbia, but they they claim him, and rightly so. Um, who wouldn't want to claim Alexander Hamilton? Um, so we're not making up um, uh, the fact that these institutions were important at the founding. They were very important. They loomed very large, and they continue to do so today, many of them uh, disproportionately represented in uh, uh, important um, governmental positions, the presidency, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Senate, to pick just three. Um, so, so it's not just some fixation of ours because you and I happen to have gone to Yale, and in fact, Yale isn't going to loom very large in these conversations because it didn't play that big a role um, at the founding, 
Um, but William and Mary did, above and beyond the seven oldest current Ivy League schools. Virginia is basically the oldest and most powerful colony, um, and William and Mary is its flagship uh, institution, academic institution, uh, second in uh, seniority uh, only to Harvard, which is founded in 1636. And, uh, and um, many of uh, uh, the important founders have connections to William and Mary. So we talked about how Harvard has John Adams and then John Quincy Adams. And, and we talked about how chapter one of my book has a bunch of Harvard people, James Otis, John, John Adams, Thomas Hutchinson. So, so um, Harvard's a prominent um, uh, institutional player early on. And so, as we talked about uh, in our, uh, another recent episode, um, a couple of episodes, um, uh, so is Princeton. Uh, uh, lots of Princetonians at the Philadelphia Convention, of course, and, uh, and one of them in particular, an early and important president, James Madison, one of the six great um, uh, founders, um, most um, the, the big six, the first four presidents, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison, plus Hamilton and, and Franklin. So, so uh, Princeton has its place, and Harvard um, has its place. As I said, Yale, not so much. We're going to talk about Columbia today, and um, and uh, um, Alexander Hamilton, and and the founder of Penn, Ben Franklin. So we're going to talk about you know uh, all, all the others, um, but. William Mary isn't technically in the Ivy League because it's not a Northeastern school. The, the, the league was basically created so that football teams could play each other or sports teams could play each other. And so it's, it's about schools that are kind of located uh, geographically proximate uh, to, to each other. William Mary isn't part of technically the Ivy League, but it is one of the oldest academic institutions. And, oh, it's got an early president named Thomas Jefferson, um, and other people who loom very large in um, my uh, book, The Words That Made Us, um, uh, John Marshall, the, the, the great Chief Justice, um, is a William and Mary graduate. Um, both uh, Je- Jefferson and Marshall, who were um, uh, cousins, um, second cousins, um, once removed, uh, um, uh, both of them... Uh, were students of the same great legal scholar. I think his name is pronounced George With, but I may be mispronouncing With, maybe. Um, uh, W-Y-T-H-E. Uh, um, and um, uh, John, James Monroe, another early president, uh, was a, a William & Mary uh, a student. Um, Henry Clay will later be a William & Mary student, a perennial presidential candidate um, uh, who makes a couple of cameo appearances in uh, uh, my book. Uh, Spencer Roan, uh, prominent chief justice of the uh, uh, Supreme Court of Virginia, uh, an adversary of Joseph Story, um, is a, uh, a student of, of William and Mary, um, uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, Patrick Henry's um, a son-in-law. Um, uh, and... Um, Andy, you reminded me actually offline about about someone that I wasn't actually giving credit to um, uh, in in terms of a, a William and Mary connection. Yes, uh, they they claim George Washington as a son of William and Mary as well. See, and I would have said, gee, I didn't even know that he kind of went to college. You know, he's conventionally seen as as not college educated, but basically, you know, homeschooled, self 
taught at, with tutors um, and the like. Um, so, so truthfully, and I know a bit about Washington, but I had forgotten that there was a William and Mary uh, connection. In uh, we've talked about how he's not a lawyer, the way Jefferson is law trained, and so is 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 Hamilton. They read law and Adams. They they actually practiced law. Um, uh, um, and uh, and that's not true of of, of Washington. So um, I had I thought well, he's just a surveyor, um, and that's um, not what you go to college to study. But actually, yes. So William and Mary William and Mary do have a uh, uh, a surveying program, and he did he was certified as a surveyor by William and Mary um, at some point. Um, yeah, so he, he, he didn't, I think, go to their general course of study, um, but he got some certificate uh, or something of, of, of completion of, 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 a, of a, a surveying um, program or something. Yes, at the age of 17, in fact. Okay, and, th- and people did go to college early. Um, uh, um, Cotton, uh, um, uh, Mather um, uh, 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 graduated from Harvard, but at age 14 or something like that, we could look it up, and, uh, and, and Jefferson shows up, I think, at age 16. Well, but also regarding um, Washington, he, he became, he returned to William and Mary later and became the first uh, chancellor of William and Mary that was an American. Um, so there you go. And of course, you know, everyone's going to want to claim George Washington. Yeah, so um, according to Wikipedia, uh, Cotton Mather graduated from Harvard in 1678 at age 15. Okay, so, so, um, okay. So you should also mention that they had the first law school in America. Um, uh, William and Mary. Yes. Uh, so um, so we have to give William and Mary its props. It's it's a very important school early on. Um, I, I I kind of gave George with um, short shrift. He's um, a great legal scholar, um, and and the teacher of of many of these um, uh, early um, American icons, uh, Jefferson. Um, uh, and, and Marshall most dramatically. Um, he himself uh, was one of the 55 persons uh, who uh, attended the Philadelphia Constitutional Convention, but he left very early on, I think, uh, um, for some family uh, reasons. Uh, and uh, he was uh, uh, a justice on the uh, Virginia uh, Supreme Court. Um, he also pre- um, was a teacher of other, uh, of not just statesmen but scholars, um, like uh, Saint George Tucker. So, um, so yes, um, uh, William and Mary is a really important institution early on. Um, and now let's also talk about how it's been an important institution in America's constitutional conversation. Uh, in more recent times, in the 20th and 21st centuries. So, um, uh, a bit later, I'm going to talk about um, the most important book on the Constitution of the 20th century um, by a Columbia uh, professor, Charles Beard, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution, 1913, um, which presented the founders as basically... um, uh, out to line their own pockets in certain ways to, to make money off of their government bonds and, and that's why they supported a strong federal government. And, and Beard's ideas have been largely discredited. He focused way more on, on what was in people's pocketbooks than on what was in people's heads, what, what, they were, what their ideas were. Uh, 
And then along came a professor at William & Mary. His name was Douglas Adair. And in the middle of the 20th century, he said, let's actually focus on their ideas. And they have these ideas about republicanism and, and they're building on Locke in various ways and, and other uh, English um, uh, um, uh, thinkers and theorists, um, uh, the, the Commonwealth um, tradition, um, the uh, English uh, levelers and Republicans, um, uh, and um, and 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 um, a, a Scots like uh, a David Hume, um, um, and other uh, uh, folks in the Scottish Enlightenment, and and Adair actually began to explore this young professor in the middle of the 20th century at William and Mary the intellectual origins of the American Revolution and the American Revolutionaries. Uh, and uh, at the time, maybe Ed Morgan is beginning to say some of the same things in the 1940s and, and 50s, um, uh, uh, initially at Brown and then eventually at Yale, um, my teacher, Ed Morgan. Um, and um, Adair's ideas and Morgan's ideas are going to um, uh, flourish in uh, 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 later in the uh, 20th century with pioneering work by the great Bernard Balin at Harvard, his um, most famous student, um, who we're going to talk about more today, Gordon Wood at Brown, other great disciples of, of Balin, uh, preeminently Pauline Mayer at MIT and Jack Raycove at Stanford. There are others, um, but, but Adair is seeing some of these things first. We mentioned Gary Wills, um, the great Gary Wills uh, in a previous episode, and, and we mentioned Explaining America, where he talks about the Philadelphia Convention looking a bit like a Princeton reunion. Um, um, here's the dedication of um, that book on the Federalist Papers by Gary Wills, Explaining America. To the memory of Douglas Adair, who saw it first. Uh, and it's, it's a lovely dedication. Um, Adair... Uh, wrote these really important articles on, on the revolution and the revolutionaries, uh, um, but he never pulled it all together into a book. The book that we have from Adair was published posthumously, um, and so that's why it's to the memory of Douglas Adair. Um, and Adair not only said Beard was wrong, uh, there's a, um, uh, we need to pay attention to ideas and not just claimed uh, economic uh, interests of the f- founders. He also had, had, had many really interesting ideas. He understood connections between the founders and classical antiquity, the way they were trying to build on the glory of ancient uh, Rome, for example. Um, that's why we have a thing called a Senate. Um, and why Washington, D.C. looks the way it does, and how um, uh, Washington is modeling himself on the tradition of the great um, uh, Roman uh, farmer um, warrior, Cincinnatus, who leaves his plow, defends uh, his um, country, and then when he is victorious in arms, goes back to the farm. Um, And then does it again. Uh, and so did Washington, by the way, do it more than once. So that's why he's called the American Cincinnatus, and Wills will write a book about George Washington entitled Cincinnatus, but, and, 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 and Adair is seeing the, the influence of classical antiquity on the 
founders, as um, uh, um, Wood will um, comment on, and, and Gordon Wood and some of um, his great work. Um, another Adair idea is the Federalist 10 is vastly overrated as uh, um, an important influence on the actual ratification. At the time, Madison's Federalist 10 was not actually uh, reprinted widely or talked about, and Adair saw that first and actually writes a, uh, an essay on the 10th Federalist Revisited. So then why... Um, so what was important? The early geostrategic arguments for union uh, by the likes of, of Hamilton and, um, uh, and Jay and not by, by uh, James Madison. And, and, and Washington's vision of the Constitution was a geostrategic one, very much in the tradition of the, the early Federalist Papers, um, before Federalist 10, and Adair um, didn't see all of that, but he saw some of that and saw it first, that Federalist 10 wasn't significant to, at the time, and indeed wasn't cited really for the next hundred years. So then why does everyone study Federalist 10 in school today? In high school, many of them definitely in college uh, or graduate school, because in the beginning of the 20th century, this very influential scholar named Charles Beard wrote this very influential book in which he said, oh, it's all about economic interest, and see, it's in Federalist 10. Federalist 10 talks about the class issue, the, the property issue, that they're going to be it, it, rich and poor, and, and, and you have to protect minorities, and the Federalist 10 is concerned not just about religious minorities, although it talks about religion, um, or racial minorities, Madison maybe didn't care as much about that. It's about economic minorities. Um, and, and see, Madison is confessing all of that. This is, um, 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 this is the smoking gun for the idea that the Constitution was all about protecting the class interests of the, the elite, the 1%. This was a kind of a Marxian analysis that um, uh, Beard offered of the American Revolution, seeing... Madison is a kind of Marxian an analyst avant la lettre talking about um, uh, the, the importance of protecting property and economic elites. And, and, and Beard was hugely influential, um, and his disciples include people like Howard Sin and, uh, and Michael Klarman today. But Adair is pushing back on all that, saying, actually, Madison wasn't so influential, the Federalist Ten, um, uh, until Beard came along. Um, and, and recent uh, uh, scholarship has confirmed Adair and all that, a 29-volume documentary history of the ratification of the Constitution pulling together um, uh, in 29 edited volumes you know, all the newspaper essays and, and squibs and, 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 and convention conversations and the rest about the Constitution and very little uh, emphasis on uh, Federalist uh, 10. So Adair's instincts have, have been proved right about this. So Wills is right. Douglas Adair saw a bunch of things first, and he was at William & Mary. One final thing about William & Mary, and um, which is Adair revived the William & Mary Quarterly as this great historical um, journal, and which he... Um, uh, um, uh, he um, he revived a thing called the third series of the William and Mary Quarterly and made it the preeminent locus for 
great scholarship on uh, especially the founding and um, in uh, uh, and all the people that we've really talked about prominently, like Ed Morgan, like Bernard Balin, uh, 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 like Gordon Wood, published important pieces in the William and Mary Quarterly. Uh, and um, in um, my recent book, The Words That Made Us, uh, the William and Mary Quarterly features very prominently in my end notes. Um, and indeed, uh, there's a, a special abbreviation, WMQ, for it uh, because um, uh, it, it, it looms so large in the scholarship on which um, I myself tried to build. You know, Adair, um, he takes on Beard, but um, he takes him on in a number of ways. So he, he might, he, he explains uh, why his ideas are different from, from Beard's and he puts them in, uh, in competition with his ideas, but he also explores uh, Beard's motivations. He explores, you know, Beard's previous scholarship and um, also the times that he wrote in, you know, the progressive era, as you mentioned, Marx, you know, and so forth. And so Beard, Beard's writings were very much of a piece with the, uh, with, you know, the, the subjects of debate at the times. It would be as if one revised uh, one's entire theory of the American Revolution uh, to say that it uh, came from Dunmore's proclamation in today's day, uh, milieu. So historiography is a really interesting aspect of the study of history and how different generations see the past differently, in part because of things that are occurring in their own present. And Adair, so Adair does take that on as well. Now, I don't know how much he actually went... It, was he involved with sort of the counting of citations and so forth, or was that later? Um, well, he does talk about how the Federalist 10 isn't particularly mm -hmm. um, prominent in uh, uh, um, s scholarship and, and, and American memory uh, after the founding. He doesn't emphasize quite as much um, that it's not cited at the time because he doesn't have access to all the databases that, that we do now. But um, his instinct that Federalist 10 is is looming larger um, in 20th century conversations than it did before is confirmed. And um, and I'm carrying it all the way back and saying, not only was Adair right that people aren't talking about the Federalist 10 after the Constitution, they're not even talking about the Federalist 10 during the ratification process. And that's what you can confirm with computer uh, searches because the 29 volumes of the documentary history of the ratification of the Constitution, um, which comes out of the University of Wisconsin, um, uh, originated by a guy named Jensen, who was a Beardian, but um, they did a lot of work and they put it all uh, you know, online and it's now word searchable. And you can confirm that Federalist 10 doesn't loom very large. You could say, oh, well, maybe it wasn't cited, maybe it wasn't reprinted, but the ideas are discussed, but in fact, that's also not true. Um, a great political scientist named William Riker went through um, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of, of pages of material and coded everything, what argument is being made um, here, 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 um, and in, in his coding of the thing, again, the specific, Mad the Madison specific points in Federalist 10, the things that make Federalist 10 uh, 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 particularly uh, distinctive and unusual Madisonian are not picked up on um, by later folks. You could say, well, of course, um, that's what makes it distinctive is Madison saying it first. 
fine, but are other people saying it second and third and fourth quickly after Madison? The answer is not according to Riker and not according to um, a, a great scholar named Larry Kramer, a former dean of the Stanford Law School, um, not according to um, uh, my own um, uh, computer searches using the uh, documentary history of the ratification of the Constitution, 29, count them, 29 volumes. And we'll return to Beard when we go to Columbia. But before we get there, we should take a quick stop off in New Haven and uh, discuss Yale just quickly. Yes, yeah, since we talked about Harvard and Princeton, what about Yale? And the answer is Yale doesn't play a particular prominent role. Okay, so at Philadelphia, there is a prominent person from Connecticut who um, plays an outsized role. Um, his name is Roger Sherman. And here's what's interesting about him. He's not college educated. He's a cobbler. He's self-made. Um, and other people are self-made, but they manage to get themselves to college, at least in some sense, like, like um, at Hamilton or to found a college like, like Franklin. That's not Roger Sherman. Roger Sherman is, Andy, you and I know, mayor of New Haven. He's one of only six people to sign the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He's the only person to sign the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Articles of Confederation. Um, he was one of the five members of the drafting committee of the Declaration, along with icons, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Ben Franklin, then there was Roger Sherman, and then one person named Roger, uh, Robert Livingston, um, Robert R. Livingston from New York, or Livingston the Younger, known as the Chancellor. His father was a, a prominent uh, congressman in the Stamp Act Congress. Um, I say congressman, but it wasn't um, quite the same thing as, as the Congresses under the, the Constitution. So Roger Sherman, again, was there for the Declaration of Independence and was there for the Articles of Confederation, signed both documents, and also signed the Constitution. Um, he's buried um, just a few... Uh, yards, frankly, from my office uh, uh, at the Yale Law School, just right across the street, in the Grove Street Cemetery. But he's not a Yaley. Um, uh, now there's another uh, prominent person uh, from the Connecticut delegation in Philadelphia. His name is Oliver Ellsworth. He's going to later become uh, the second Chief Justice of the United States. Um, and um, uh, or, or technically maybe actually was the... the the third, I can't remember. Um, uh, there was a little, yes, there was a little blip. Um, third, um, with um, uh, 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 a guy named Rutledge from South Carolina, who was never confirmed to be chief. Um, uh, so Oliver Ellsworth um, is going to be. He's a prominent person at Philadelphia. He's from Connecticut. He's a prominent person from Philadelphia um, at the Philadelphia Convention, and he becomes a, a, one of the first senators. He champions the Judiciary Act of seventy nine eighty nine that sets up. Um, the, the, the federal judicial system decides how many justices there are going to be, six at the founding and, and lower federal judges and, and all of that. Um, uh, and again, then he becomes chief justice. So a really important figure, but here's the embarrassment if you're a Yaley like you and me. He spends a little time at Yale, but then goes off and, and transfers to Princeton, for, and, he, and he's a Princeton graduate. So I think Princeton gets to claim it more than Yale does. So, so one of his, his portrait does hang in the Yale Law School library, but it's a little awkward. So uh, on the category of useless information here, uh, Roger Sherman's home is a uh, prominent restaurant now. It used in, to be called Sherman's Tavern on the Green. Now it's the uh, Union, Union League uh, Cafe. cafe. Uh -huh. And uh, 
And when you go there, actually on the mantle, there's a little plaque. I'm not making this up. George Washington slept here. Um, <laughs> many, many plaques in America, mm-hmm. and they're, they're true because George Washington did a northern tour, and, and, and uh, that was important to try to solidify the nation, to, to see um, and be seen up and down the continent. And, and, that's, on, and that's on the Yale, I mean, that's just right across the street from um, where we spent our freshman yes, years. Chapel Street, yeah. same place where Robert Moses was born. Um, so, uh, and in the terms of this Yale-Princeton rivalry, the uh, Grove Street Cemetery has a rivalry with uh, the Princeton Cemetery. They both call themselves the Westminster Abbey of America. Uh, in front of the Grove Street Cemetery, there's an inscription that says, and it's, you have to understand it's located right in the middle of the Yale campus, especially mm-hmm. now since Yale built two new residential colleges on the other side of the cemetery. So it says, uh, the dead shall be raised, and people say, uh, yeah, the dead will they shall be raised when when Yale needs the land. Exactly so, um, um, and, and and as uh, mentioned, it's it's um, uh, it's right across the street from my office. My office looks down upon the cemetery. I don't know what they're trying to tell me, but that was the office they gave me. Well, in the Princeton Cemetery, we've got uh, Jonathan Edwards and uh, Aaron Burr are buried there, among many others. And there's a residential college, of course, at Yale named Jonathan Edwards, and I actually have a friend who I think yes, who, 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 who was in Jonathan Edwards. Yes. I, I can't remember his name. I think it, 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 it rhymes with Shipka or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're, you're J.E. class of 78. Yes. Okay. And, and ridiculously proud of it. Yes. I, I'm, I'm very proud. I'm actually a fellow of Jonathan Edwards, which I'm... It's a and, great honor. And he's America's greatest theologian, as mentioned, um, and, and a very prominent Yale person. But, yeah, he's buried in Princeton, and his son-in-law is president of Princeton, um, and his grandson is Aaron Burr, yes. yep, uh, who's a Princeton grad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and, and that's the Oliver Ellsworth thing. He said, there's a little bit of Yale, but there's kind of more Princeton. So we don't talk about uh, Oliver Ellsworth, and, and, and Roger Sherman isn't even a college graduate, which makes him really unusual and distinctive, um, um, uh, kind of, an, as it were, a working class person, someone who works with his hands, who manages to become a really prominent um, statesman. Um, so um, we don't have early Yale presidents um, the way William & Mary does, and Princeton does, and Harvard does, um, and, and we don't even have our own Alexander Hamilton or Ben Franklin quite. Um, um, so. Um, we end up having at, at Yale, um, uh, we don't have an early chief justice, you know, William & Mary has John Marshall. Um, so, so when Yale is trying to name things, and we mentioned this um, earlier in the 20th century, residential colleges and, and pick at least one statesman, they don't have a lot to pick from, so they pick an, you know, an early-ish vice president, that's all we got, John C. Calhoun, but you and I think John C. Calhoun is horrible because he basically stands for slavery and secession, and those are not good ideas, so it was... It was always a mistake to name this residential college for Calhoun, and we finally, um, in recent years, um, unnamed it. Um, but, but okay, so I think we've explained why we're not dumping on Yale so much because there's, you know, there are not that many founders to, or, uh, to, 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 to Yale is the Constitution is not a Yale story, alas. So instead, we need great constitutional scholars to explain it. <laughs> so, so on to Columbia then. Okay, so we've done Harvard, we've done Princeton. Then Yale, we've talked about women, Mary. There's just not a lot to talk about with Rutgers, at least that I've been able to, to come up with, with Queens College, okay. But now Columbia, and, and we've already basically um, said the two things that are most important to be said. At the founding, it's all about Hamilton, 
and Hamilton is Washington's right hand, and he it's his Federalist Papers that are the most important, um, um, based on a geostrategic vision. He is the great nation builder um, uh, as Washington's right hand um, uh, in the period in which the Constitution is consolidated, the, the, the Washington administration creating a, um, a bank and a, and a funded national debt and a currency system um, and um, and and uh, just the, the the architect of um, uh, a, a great nation, a, a, an indivisible nation, uh, and 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 although he doesn't graduate from uh, Columbia, he um, uh, and he actually initially wanted to go to Princeton, but they didn't, ha- you know, they, they they wanted him to take some remedial courses, and he was a man in a hurry. Um, that's dramatized, of course, in the play. Lots of things are dramatized very nicely in the play Hamilton, um, and, uh, and 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 Columbia very proudly claims him. Uh, and then we've also talked about um, the most important constitutional figure, really, um, in uh, uh, a post Civil War era, is the scholar Charles Beard who wrote this book in 1913, I think it got us off on completely the wrong track, saying, oh, it was all about um, economic self-interest of a few um, of the leading um, uh, Federalists who supported a strong national government so they could enrich themselves. And I, I think that that misses more than it captures. But that Columbia book, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution, 1913, has been hugely influential for later people in the progressive debunking tradition um, like Howard Zinn um, and we're going to put up on um, and um, uh, Michael Klarman um, uh, we're going to put up on the podcast a couple of fun little clips talking about um, Gordon Wood and Howard Zinn from uh, Matt Damon's uh, 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 movie Goodwill Hunting uh, Ben Affleck I think uh, has a little cameo in these clips that we're going to put up and and all of this is a, um, oh, there. I think we'll put up two scenes, YouTube scenes, but one of them takes place at a bar involving actually Harvard students. So I, I come along in the 21st century and I'm trying to debunk Beard's debunking and in so doing push back against um, people like um, uh, Klarman um, uh, or Alan Taylor, a, a great historian at the University of Virginia, not in existence at the time of the founding, but, cre- but founded by a founder, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Alan Taylor. And, um, and um, I think they underplay people like Klarman and Taylor, definitely Beard, the importance of uh, the uh, ideas that drove the American Revolution. And Adair did see it first, or at least in the 20th century. There had been people before him, George Bancroft maybe and others, but, but Adair saw it first post-Beard, and people like Balin at Harvard and, and Morgan at Yale and Wood at Brown, who we're going to talk about, and yours truly um, at Yale, are, um, um, uh, uh, Gary Wills and others are trying to um, make sure that we don't forget the, the ideas that drove the conversation. So I know you've written on this quite a lot, including at the very beginning of America's Constitutional Biography, um, where you talk about the ratification as being a... Uh, a strong uh, rebuttal to Beard in terms of the democratic nature of the ratification. Yeah, they put the thing to a vote. And Beard makes you forget that. And by the way, a lot of Beard's alleged facts about who owned what and why have been completely disproved. Uh, so Beard has been largely debunked, and yet 
the residue of Beardianism, Beardianism sort of still exists and progressives, um, and our friend Stephen Smith talks about this, um, are often way too quick to dump on the American constitutional tradition rather than seeing what's extraordinary about it. They do put it to a vote, and there are no property qualifications um, in, for example, the New York Ratifying Convention, even though there are property qualifications for ordinary New York elections. In eight of the 13 states, the ordinary property rules for who could vote and who could be voting for, uh, voted for are lowered or eliminated in the constitutional ratification process. And Charles Beard knew that and didn't tell his reader. And almost no one knew of that until I put that forth in my 2005 book, in the first three pages of the book and accompanying endnotes, America's Constitutional Biography. And if you hear pride in my voice about that, you're not mishearing. I'm really proud of the fact that I brought those facts to light because Beard knew them and didn't um, uh, um, tell his reader and other people didn't know them and you won't find those facts prominently in Michael Klarman's um, interesting book, um, The Framers Coup. Um, we've invited, I'm We've invited him onto the podcast. I want to invite him again. I, I've invited him to do an event with me uh, on Constitution Day uh, in uh, the University of Illinois, where my brother is dean. We're going to have a conversation about the new book. And I, and I want Michael Clement to be part of that conversation, because I'd love to hear you know, um, his, his response. Um, but yes, putting the Constitution to a vote in and, and which property qualifications were lowered or eliminated in eight of the 13 states and weren't high to begin with in two of the others. That's really important. That's, the, I believe, the hinge of world history. We put the thing to a vote up and down a continent, and such a thing had never been done before. The, the Greeks had never put their constitutions to a vote, um, uh, even when they had democratic constitutions in places like um, um, uh, ancient Athens. The, the Romans had never reduced everything to a short text and put it to a vote. Um, Britain has an unwritten constitution. The Swiss never, prior to um, 1780s, um, reduced all their ideas to a short little text and that could be read in the newspaper and voted on. The Swiss never did anything like that. In 1776, the Declaration of Independence not put to a vote. None of the state constitutions in 1776 put to a, a special vote, not the Articles of Confederation. So doing that in 1787-88 was a big deal. That's why it says we, the people of the United States, do ordain and establish this constitution. And that's not a few people behind closed doors just lining their own pockets, because if that's what it was all about, why did everyone else vote for the thing? And why did they vote unanimously for George Washington and then vote unanimously in the Electoral College both times, of course, um, to re-elect George Washington? And Beard oh. has no good answer to those things. So, so, so on Columbia, Yay, Hamilton, not so much beard. So if someone wanted to read, a, let's say, your most definitive account of this argument, would it, where, would it, where would they find it in your writings? Uh, the first three pages, uh, the first chapter of America's Constitution of Biography from 2005, all of which is free on the Amazon website. You can read the whole first chapter. Maybe not all the endnotes, but at least the text. Um, and there are important endnotes early on, right? There are. Maybe we'll put them up on the. Uh, that on sounds the great. Yes, absolutely. Um, and the new book, of course. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, so yeah, I, I do think that's one of your more important uh, contributions, which is why I wanted to call oh. attention to it. Thank you, Andy. So on to next, I think would be Penn. 
And I don't have a lot to say about Penn, except that um, I so admire Ben Franklin. He didn't go to Penn. He founded Penn. And here's uh, what we should say about Penn. Um, It claims to be, and I think it's not implausible that it claims to be really the, the first secular university, at least in America, maybe in the world. So, so Harvard is the oldest, but it's founded as a, um, uh, as a divinity school of sorts, as a, um, uh, an institution to train ministers. You know, and that's how Yale is founded, but I think you know more about the history of Yale, and we're going to talk more about the history of Yale in a special uh, a podcast edition on, um, on Yale's constitution, um, uh, well, uh, 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 that special enrichment um, episode. Uh, uh, um, but, um, so, uh, but, but the early colleges are basically seminaries for um, uh, priests. Um, and Benjamin Franklin comes along and founds the University of Pennsylvania on a more secular foundation of just pursuing um, knowledge, um, regardless of its theological um, uh, implications and, and entailments. And in the later 19th century, that's going to become, in America, um, research universities, not just colleges, on a German model of the great um, research universities. That's going to be, in America, places like Johns Hopkins and the University of Chicago um, in the, the late 19th century. But, but um, Penn is arguably the beginning all, of all of that, um, founded by an extraordinary person who also, you see, is there both for the Declaration of Independence, he's on the five-person drafting committee, and the Constitution. Uh, um, and, of course, um, it also plays a role early on in the Articles of Confederation before he goes off to, to uh, France. So, and, and that addresses in part what I was about to ask you, which is, you know, Franklin is a beloved figure. You know, he's probably our wittiest founder. He's the most quotable in some ways. Um, he's uh, a man of the Enlightenment. He wrote a brilliant uh, autobiography, um, founded post offices and... Libraries know, and... Bifocals um, and you name it. But, and he's an ophthalmologist, yes, so, so do not underestimate the significance of, of him. I mean, we could talk about the lightning rod and the Franklin stove, but... but, yeah, but bifocals, Andy, now you're talking. Yeah, exactly. That, that's that's um, real money <laughs> <laughs> but, for um, an ophthalmologist. So, so clearly, he's, you know, one would, would consider him one of America's most notable men, but why specifically is he a founder as opposed to, let's say, James Wilson? Or who is a founder as well, but you don't list him as one of the, the big, the big five, the big six, you know, and so forth. What, what, where's because Fra- you know Franklin, he he doesn't have as defined a role, does he, as as the other founders? Um, well, James Wilson deserves uh, you know uh, 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 to be uh, remembered much more um, prominently than he is, um, uh, and he. Did he his doesn't schooling. get his own chapter in the words that right, and he he did because um, uh, and, and he did his schooling in Scotland. He's an immigrant ki- uh, kid, um, not quite as dramatic a story as, as Hamilton, but but first, um, if we're talking about people who like an only in America stories, so um, Hamilton, you know, is a bastard brat of a Scot peddler. You know, uh, how does a you know bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman? That's how the, the, the musical begins. You know, become 
uh, a founding father. Um, uh, Franklin is the son of a candle maker. I think he's the 10th son or something like that, second marriage. Um, so lowborn, and he, he, he invents himself um, in a distinctly American way, very self-made, um, um, a hugely successful business person, makes a huge fortune as a printer. Um, and, um, you know, pr- being a printer, it, it's kind of halfway between being an artisan, because you are working with your hands a lot, but you're also working with your head. You're composing texts and, and words. You're being an author of sorts. You're not just publishing other people's words, but at least in Franklin's case, you're composing um, some of your, your, your own content. Um, so, so if you say, why Franklin? Because he's not just a force, but the drive, a driving force of the Declaration of Independence. Remember, he's talking about the need for Americans to unite in the 1750s when, when James Wilson hasn't even arrived in America yet. So he's preeminent. He, he um, spends a decade um, in the 1760s and early 1770s advocating for America in Britain. He's the most famous American um, uh, in the world um, when he's off in England. Um, and then he comes back to America and champions the Declaration of Independence. And then he goes off to France and, and charms the French so they support um, America financially and militarily. And without that, we don't win. And then when he shows up again um, uh, at Philadelphia, um, now for the second time, the first time Declaration of Independence, well, he's Philadelphia, I mean, he, he, really, he shows up at Philadelphia first when he's about 20 years old, um, impoverished with just a few coins in his pocket. Um, but, but so he's there at Philadelphia in 1776 and one of the five people behind the Declaration of Independence in, on the drafting committee. Um, and, and that drafting committee represents everyone north to south, and that's Franklin's idea. Join or die. We have to hang together. Join or die is his idea in 1754. He's the architect of a thing called the Albany Congress, which is the first intercolonial gathering, which is going to be the precursor of a Stamp Act Congress and the first Continental Congress, which will become the Confederation Congress, and ultimately, you know, all that ripens in the Constitution. So he's a great American Continentalist from the 1750s on. Um, join or die, Albany Congress, architect of the Declaration of Independence and an inspiring spirit. The two people most responsible, or maybe the three most responsible for basically winning American independence would be Washington in arms, Franklin in Paris, um, um, and Adams um, in uh, the early Congresses. Um, um, uh, 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 so um, uh, maybe Jefferson also. So they're, they're really important 1776 figures. Again, he comes back and is the benign presence um, hovering over the Philadelphia Convention. The two people in, that, that all Americans have heard of who show up at Philadelphia in 1787 are Ben Franklin and George Washington, and their, their, their support of the document counts for more than everyone else put together. People haven't heard of James Wilson or James Madison or Alexander Hamilton. Um, everyone's heard of Benjamin Franklin, um, and so he's vouching for the thing, he's Gandhi, okay? He's the, this kind of grandfatherly figure, um, preside, you know, that, that, that along with Washington is the embodiment of the American Revolution, and they work together. Um, that's the, th- the theme of a great book by my friend and uh, co-teacher, Ed Larson, a joint biography called Franklin and Washington. Um, 
wonderful book by Ed Lar- Pulitzer Prize winner Ed Larson, who kindly blurred my most, most recent book. Thank you, Ed, for that. So, um, and then at the very end, he pushes for abolition, um, and and then he dies, um, and the and that's the story that I tell in the last chapter. So, um, takes nothing away from James Wilson to say that it's, he's not quite that. So, so um, Ben Franklin is this preeminent figure alongside Madison, excuse me, alongside Washington, Freudian slip there. Um, uh, Washington and Franklin uh, are far and away the, the, the most celebrated um, Americans in the world um, in uh, the mid-1780s. Um, Franklin, for all his um, uh, ideas and innovations, um, like his theories of electricity and the Franklin stove and the lightning rod and bifocals and Mars, you know, all his um, impressive achievements. And Washington for not only winning the war, but in Cincinnati's fashion, walking away from the army and going back to, to, to his farm. Um, and, and Beard isn't going to capture all of that, but Adair and others do sing. There's, an, uh, there's a background behind all of that there. Um, they're trying to recreate, you know, um, the, the glory of um, Roman uh, virtue, patriotism, sacrifice, republicanism. Well, it sounds like Franklin was a founder in the same way that he lived his life, which is that he was fantastic at many things. Um, it was, you, you wouldn't say one thing about Benjamin Franklin. And I'm smiling because I used a word in chapter one of my first draft of the book, um, and the problem is I used it too many times in later chapters. You're laughing, and so you, you got me to get rid of it. So I, I think I only have it once in the book, and the word is polymath. Yes. Well, what about Penn today? Um, well, you're, you live much closer to Penn than I do, um, and I think one of your family members, at least one, maybe several, are Penn graduates. I'm you know, very much uh, admiring of it. Um, uh, the one story I can tell you uh, about it is... Um, that uh, when I was on the teaching market, uh, well, let me tell two stories. One, when I was on the teaching market um, back in 1985, I um, uh, asked them, uh, hey, do you, do you have anything um, uh, on James Wilson? Because conventionally he's seen as sort of, of the founder of the Penn Law School. He gave a series of lectures that, that later kind of law lectures um, uh, 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 when he's on the Supreme Court um, in uh, around 1790, and George Washington attends, and they're this amazing intellectual uh, event, America kind of coming of age. He's like, uh, uh, Wilson is this American Blackstone saying, hey, we've got legal ideas and legal theories, and, uh, and uh, um, so he's conventionally understood as the founder of the Penn Law School is, is James Wilson, who also played a role, but a more minor one, in the Declaration of Independence. And he's there at the, um, in Philadelphia uh, for the Constitution as well, one of the signers. He's one of the six people, along with Franklin and Sherman. Those are three of the six people who signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Ben Franklin, James Wilson, Roger Sherman. Um, so uh, when I'm applying for a job, I'm this little pipsqueak, 26 years old, um, at, uh, at Penn. Do you have any stuff on James Wilson and a librarian. And, and so they say, well, I think, let's ask the librarian. So we go over to the library and he says, 
yeah, I think we do. And he takes me, you know, into the library. And then in the library, there's a closet. He takes me into the closet. And in the closet, there's, you know, this high shelf. Um, and on the shelf, there's this shoe box. And it's got an inch of dust on the top. And he pulls off the box and he blows off um, a dust, uh, an inch of, of, of dust on the thing. And we open the shoe box or something. And in this shoe box, there's James Wilson's commission to the United States Supreme Court signed by George Washington. And I tell the librarian, I say, you know, I think this belongs somewhere else, not quite in a shoebox under an inch of dust on a shelf in a closet um, in the library. Um, and now when you go to the Penn Law School, um, that's featured more prominently. Now, one other shout out to Penn. I visited there. The, the dean of the law school is um, uh, um, a, a, a wonderful person. Um, By visit, you mean you were a visiting professor? I was a visiting professor there, exactly. Um, and uh, and they've got a young scholar there who's really doing very interesting work. Her name is Maggie Blackhawk. Um, and she writes an interesting article in the Harvard Law Review, an important one, saying uh, Nate, uh, the law involving Native Americans hasn't been um, treated as uh, uh, central to the constitutional conversation, the canon. So everyone thinks in order to do constitutional law, you need to talk about blacks and American slavery. But wait, what about um, the Native American experience? And in particular, there are three um, martial court cases. They're, they're called the, the, the Cherokee Trilogy, uh, Johnson versus McIntyre, um, uh, uh, the Cherokee Nation case and Worcester versus Georgia. So this trilogy in the 1830s should be as central to American, um, the training of American uh, lawyers today, young lawyers, as say Dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson and uh, uh, Brown versus Board of Education. And this is an important article in the Harvard Law Review that Maggie Blackhawk, this younger professor at University of Pennsylvania, has written. And I read it, and I think, you know, I think she's right about that. And I, I'm embarrassed. I don't know enough about those cases. So I did read them with considerable care and wrote about them in a new book, in a chapter on Andrew Jackson. Um, now, Maggie's not going to agree, perhaps, with everything that I say about those cases, because I read the, the most important of the three cases, Worcester versus Georgia, uh, I think differently than does she. But that's what it means actually for a case to be canonical is that scholars and lawyers actually will read it and maybe have different opinions of it, different interpretations of an important case like Marbury versus Madison or Brown versus Board of Education or McCulloch versus Maryland. Even if we all agree today that Brown is right, oh, we're going to disagree about why it's right. And originalists are going to have their theory and non-originalists are going to have a different theory and, and critical race theorists are going to have their own theory of Brown versus Board of Education. And, and I have a different reading of Worcester versus Georgia, I think, than and does Maggie in this important article in the Harvard Law Review, but hats off to her because of this important article by this um, uh, still young professor at, at Penn. Um, uh, I, um, I, I uh, spent a lot more time than I ever had really thinking hard about the, the, the Marshall Court trilogy on Native American law, and that's in the new book. So as we move on, we move up to, uh, to Brown. Um, of course, we've spoken about Gordon Wood um, in, the, in our prior uh, podcast about Harvard. Um, Where he trained under Bernard Balin. Mm -hmm. but, uh, and wrote early articles in the William & Mary Quarterly. Mm -hmm. 
But, uh, and of course, Gordon Wood's going to be a, uh, a guest professor at our Ever Scholar course, the first American founding, which is uh, two months away. In New York City, um, maybe some of it will actually be at Columbia, and you and I are going to have a lot of fun. You know, I as a Yaley, you know, engaging this professor from Brown who trained at Harvard in the shadow of Columbia. So you see it beginning to all come together. And, um, and Gordon Wood is, in my view, the preeminent scholar of the American founding. Um, I would say maybe the, along with um, Eric Foner, maybe the, the, one of the two preeminent scholars of the American experience. Um, uh, and, um, uh, uh, um, and we're going to put up this, this clip from Goodwill Hunting, um, Matt Damon, um, uh, involving references to Gordon Wood and to, to Howard Zinn. Uh, and um, with great trepidation in my new book, I disagree with one of Gordon Wood's central ideas. Here's what I agree on. Ideas are really important, and many of the ideas they talked about, for example, sovereignty, um, were really important in the, the run-up to the American Revolution. And my second chapter is um, very heavily indebted to people like um, Wood and Morgan and Balin um, and Pauline Mayer. Um, but my take on the Constitution is a little different than Woods. He cares about ideas, as do I. He taught me so much about everything. He, he, he um, in, in his first um, book, which is his, um, a PhD dissertation, he, it, he, has, he takes us on a brilliant tour of the early state constitutions uh, in a book, Creation of the American Republic, uh, won the um, Bancroft Prize in another book. He talks about the radicalism of the American Revolution and many of its ideas, um, uh, like abolition, um, which are going to, at least in the North, it's going to really take root and be very important. Um, uh, his book, Empire of Liberty, is extraordinary in its, in its weave of, of narrative history and cultural history and intellectual history. Um, and uh, uh, poli political, social, you know, all the kinds of history kind of beautifully come together in that um, um, epic book. He wrote a great book on the framers themselves, uh, revolutionary characters with interesting character sketches of, of the big founders, the ones we've been talking about, plus Aaron Burr and uh, Thomas Paine. Um, so um, hugely influential for me, one of my heroes. I'm really looking forward to spending time with him this summer. But one of his biggest ideas is James Madison is really the architect in, in interesting and important ways of the Constitution. Federalist 10 is particularly significant. An early version of the ideas that appeared in 10, Vices of the Political System, an essay written by Madison, um, Wood's view of particularly important. Um, and um, as uh, our audience has heard uh, ad nauseum now in previous episodes, I basically think it's not Madison's Constitution, it's Washington's. And that does put me at odds with the great Gordon Wood, so I'll be really interested to hear what he has to say um, uh, about my thesis uh, when we get together in New York. Again, a uh, Harvard-trained person talking with a Yale-trained person, um, Brown emeritus in the shadow of uh, Columbia. Uh, talking about a Princeton man named Madison and a William and Mary, you're telling me, um, affiliate named Washington. And I uh, recently, not, not that recently, but, but uh, 
heard him speak at Princeton, in fact, at the James Madison program to talk about his book about the friendship between Adams and Jefferson. So <laughs> we're all over the map there. Um, so two more. There's Cornell and Dartmouth. Oh, and let me just on Brown say one other thing, which is, of mm -hmm. course, my teacher Ed Morgan, star again, Harvard trained, um, ends his career at Yale as Sterling professor, but started um, at Brown. And Brown doesn't have a, uh, a role in the founding, right? When was Brown founded, in fact? Well, it was founded, again, it's one of the seven that's in... Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, but remember, Rhode Island doesn't even show up at the Philadelphia Convention. Um, and um, uh, you, you, you're crowing about um, your uh, residential college, J.E. I went to Ezra Stiles, as did Bob Woodward, our, our former guest, I, I might um, add, um, with great pride. Um, uh, Ezra Stiles started out in Rhode Island and then later moved to New Haven. Um, uh, but, uh, but, um, but because Rhode Island doesn't even show up at the Philadelphia Convention, doesn't ratify the Constitution until after Washington is president, I think it plays a lesser role. So um, Cornell is uh, not around at the founding. Right, so we won't say too much about it. Mm -hmm. And um, so that leaves Dartmouth. And people, someone from Dartmouth wouldn't like that way of formulating that leaves Dartmouth because, of course... Well, it, perhaps you want to end with a bang. It, okay, good. It, it's a small school, but there are those who love it, and that's the story I want to tell um, our audience. So um, uh, the modern story is um, one uh, involving um, one of the dedicatees of the book, Neil Katyal, more on him in just a moment. Um, but... Um, Dartmouth College uh, generates um, a, a case all about Dartmouth College, which is one of the great cases of the Marshall era. I don't talk about it in detail in the book, but I do mention it. It's, it's called the Dartmouth College case, Dartmouth College against Woodward, 1819, same year as McCulloch versus Maryland, which we have talked about in more detail. Um, and McCulloch's connection, for example, to Obamacare and to broad ideas of federal power, and, and Madison being wrong on the McCulloch issue on, of the bank, and Hamilton being right. So our audience has heard all of that. But that same year, John Marshall and his colleagues decide the Dartmouth, I mean, the uh, McCulloch case, 1819, which is 30 years after the founding, of course. They also decide the Dartmouth College case. And one of the lawyers involved in McCulloch case is also the lead lawyer, really, in the Dartmouth College case, and he happens to be a Dartmouth graduate, and his name is Daniel Webster. Um, and if you go to Dartmouth today, there's Webster Hall. They're very proud of Daniel Webster, who's a very great um, constitutional thinker and and uh, lawyer, and senator, um, and presidential aspirant, a former Secretary of State. Remember, Secretaries of State become president um, consistently in this era, or, and if they don't, they're often um, runners-up like uh, Henry Clay, um, or at least they thought about it a lot, like uh, John Marshall, about running for president. Um, so um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Dartmouth College case in our special episode, because it's all about the Constitution of college, and we're going to talk um, uh, about that in the next episode, the Constitution of, of Yale, but in a nutshell, Dartmouth College, which was in existence at the time of the Constitution, was actually um, founded um, when New Hampshire was just a colony, um, 
So the Crown gave Dartmouth College certain special um, uh, privileges. And at the, in the American Revolution, in effect, the New Hampshire legislature stepped into the shoes of the king and reaffirmed this special grant of, 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 of privileges, rights and privileges um, to Dartmouth. So um, it had a charter. Um, and in effect, the New Hampshire government had blessed the charter. But then at a later point, um, uh, New Hampshire in effect, tried to take over Dartmouth, to turn it, in effect, into the University of New Hampshire. And the question is whether you can do that, because they, they it was, a, we would say today, a, a private corporation um, with rights against the government. And, um, and so it was wrong for the government just to try to, to take the thing over. This, um, uh, someone today might say this, is, this was socialism, um, to take this institution um, that had been promised certain autonomy and independence and, and to then break the deal. So what was really involved in the case? Well, it seems somewhat abstract. It kind of property rights or, you know, dispute about, you know, who owns the building and the land and the name and the, the, the trademark and the goodwill and all the rest. Um, Dartmouth turns to one of his own graduates, Daniel Webster, to argue the case. Um, there's, we don't have television, um, we don't have uh, uh, um, uh, movies, so entertainment, and, well, there was not a lot going on in the nation's capital, so entertainment basically consisted of, um, in part, watching the great oral arguments at the Supreme Court, and pe the people would dress up in their fancy's clothes and, and, and go see, the f uh, as it were, the fireworks. Um, and Daniel Webster, defending his own alma mater against this assault, was trying to explain to the justices just what was at stake, why it was so important. Daniel Webster had a, a love for his school, Andy, that reminds me, truthfully, of the love that you have for your school, which we're going to talk about in the next episode. And you and I went to the same school, and we have a love for it because we think it helped make us who we are. And Stephen Smith talks about this. Maybe you know we owe certain things to our country that help make us who we are. Um, Socrates. Um, in the Apology, he talks about the debt that he owes to the city of Athens, which is, they're, they're like his, the city's like his, his parents. They, they, they created him in, in some important way. And, and I feel this, I arrived at Yale College on my 18th birthday, sight unseen, and, and I've stayed there ever since, and I feel this obligation to the place, this love for the place. And I know you feel, and that's one of the thing, reasons that, that we become friends, is we, we have that, that love for our alma mater. Um, mother, uh, um, uh, and Mother Yale, and Daniel Webster had that for his institution, too, and he was trying to explain to the court what was at stake, and, and he said at one point toward the end, bringing, it is said, tears to the eyes of some of the justices, it is, sirs, as I have said, a small school, but there are those who love it. Wow. Um, and now that brings me to my final point about Dartmouth. Many of the people in the world that I'm closest to are Dartmouth graduates. My mentor, Owen Fiss, my late mentor for whom I was a, a TA. That's how I got this job because of Owen, my job because of Owen Fiss. Um, and uh, Joe, the late, great Joe Goldstein, with whom I co-taught, another mentor of mine. Um, my extraordinary senior colleague, Kate Stith, um, um, who I 
just love as a as a friend and uh, um, as a colleague. Um, uh, and my adopted kid brother Neil Katyal, former student of mine, we wrote. Um, uh, uh, I wrote, uh, co-wrote a couple, of, uh, several pieces with him while he was still a student. Um, and Neil is the dedicate, one of the dedicatees of my new book, and he introduced me to each of the other dedicatees, Lynn Miranda, Vanessa Nadal, Lynn's spouse, Ron Chernow, the author of an extraordinary biography of Hamilton, um, on which Lynn Miranda's play, um, Lynn Manuel Miranda's play, Hamilton, is, is, is based, um, and Kaiser Khan, um, a, a, a very patriotic American whose son, a gold star, um, a, a, a parent whose, whose son happens to be a Muslim American, um, died for this country uh, in the Middle East. So, and Neil introduced me each and every one of those persons, and he's a proud Dartmouth graduate himself. Um, and, and his son attends Dartmouth as well. His son, Rem, who was thanked in the book. Rem actually helped me. He was my research assistant on the first two chapters of the book, um, and he's now an undergrad um, at Dartmouth, and, and you coached him a little bit, counseled him on how to think about his, his college applications. But just to bring everything full circle, um, Neil, who just won a case today in the United States Supreme Court, actually, a case involving Nestle Corporation. We're not going to get into the details of it. Um, but um, And who, I think, last year um, passed the good marshal as the, the person of color who's won more cases, who's argued more cases in the Supreme Court than any other, um, um, a former acting Solicitor General of the United States. So, so Neil, last, a year and a half ago, on the 200th anniversary of the Dartmouth College case, remember it's 1819, and the 250th anniversary of the founding of Dartmouth, which is 1769, Neil twice, um, in reenactments of the Dartmouth College case, got to play the role of Daniel Webster, because Neil himself is a great Supreme Court oral advocate in the spirit of, of Daniel Webster. One was at the Supreme Court itself, um, where John Roberts sat um, uh, uh, in the chair and played the role of John Marshall, and, and Kate Stith introduced the whole proceedings. Um, and the second time was up actually um, in Hanover itself at, at Dartmouth, um, uh, where I got to, um, and, and I, I was there both times, and I got to, um, uh, uh, in that second one, um, participate. And uh, Annette Gordon-Reed was also there, a very proud Dartmouth graduate. Um, and just to bring everything full circle, Annette Gordon-Reed, who is at Harvard. I'm a preeminent scholar at Harvard. She's a Harvard Law School graduate and on the Harvard Law faculty. Um, wrote uh, a prize-winning book on Thomas Jefferson um, and Sally Hemings. Has a new book, by the way, on Juneteenth that's actually a, a national bestseller. Um, um, so she's Harvard and Dartmouth writing about Thomas Jefferson from yet another important um, uh, from from William and Mary and connected to to UVA and she's I I'm, I've been told uh, kindly agreed to review uh, my new book for the Yale Law Journal. Who knows what she'll say? Yes, she may have kindly agreed, but we don't know if she's agreed to review it kindly. <laughs> <laughs> so at time, as they say, will tell. We will see. Stay tuned. So when they did this reenactment, I take it they didn't do it uh, in its in, uh, the unabridged version because. Daniel Webster's oral argument was four hours long. 
Uh, so um, times have changed. The, the oral argument in uh, McCulloch versus Maryland lasted six days. Mm. Okay, well, um, so Dartmouth College case, and next week, the uh, modern uh, modern in- incarnation of it uh, in uh, in Yale Corporation. Actually, we'll be talking about uh, about the Yale Constitution uh, as a bonus episode, so it'll it, yeah, it'll air you- uh, shortly after this one. We'll put it up uh, before next week, so look for it uh, earlier than than usual. Until then. Mm-hmm.